Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another Tolkien Chat. Uh, I just want to stop for a second to say a little bit about this series to uh, make sure to kind of explain what it is I'm doing here. Uh, the Tolkien Chats are, by their nature, of course, rather eclectic. The idea is simply, uh, you know, for me to get the opportunity to sit down with somebody, maybe a student of mine, maybe a former student, maybe another scholar, uh, maybe just, you know, somebody else who is a, a, a Tolkien fan or a listener, uh, and have a conversation about uh, you know about Tolkien and about the things that interest us. So they are going to be pretty wide-ranging. I say going to be because this is actually something that I would like to start doing a little bit more of. So I'm going to be uh, releasing here a series of episodes in which I talk to other authors, in which I talk to, uh, to students and to listeners. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the rather uh, unusual collection of different conversations that I'm going to be putting forward here uh, as Tolkien Chats. In today's Tolkien Chat, I am talking with Ethan Gilsdorf and Noble Smith. Ethan and Noble are both authors who are very interested both in Tolkien and in fantasy. Uh, Ethan Gilsdorf is the author of Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, a very interesting book about uh, the sort of fantasy and gaming culture. Uh, it's something that I strongly recommend to anybody who you know so is really interested in thinking about about fantasy and about how it how it impacts our culture and the way in which uh, you know we sort of interact with each other and the way we conceive of ourselves um, and then Noble Smith is the author of the wisdom of the Shire uh, a really interesting uh, and thoughtful book about sort of the uh, the wisdom and morality of uh, hobbits and the Shire um, it's very cool so with no further ado I give you today's Tolkien chat Welcome. Uh, th thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, I do want to do a little brief introduction uh, for everybody here. Uh, up, uh, up above me there, we have Ethan Gilsdorf, the author of Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks and much other uh, material in journalism and, uh, and elsewhere and speaker and everything. So it's uh, very good to have you joining us, uh, Ethan. And, Thank you so much. Over here uh, on my left, we have uh, Noel Smith, who is the author of The Wisdom of the Shire, uh, and also working on some other things, too. So uh, welcome, guys. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks, for, a lot, Corey. thanks for joining me to have a little Tolkien chat here this evening. Um, and you know, first, we might as well just start off, you know, I mentioned the, the books that you guys uh, publish, which are both really great. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, my listeners would like to learn a little bit more about those projects. Ethan, you want to tell us a little bit about Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks? Sure. Well, it's a book um, that kind of grew out of my own, you know, adolescent uh, interest in, in role-playing games like Dungeons and & Dragons and, and fantasy literature like Tolkien. And it's sort of my own personal story about my um, fascination with this stuff as a kid and then essentially giving it up at a certain point when I quote-unquote grew up, whatever <laughs> right. that means, and, uh, and then rediscovering all this stuff uh, through some, you know, perhaps turns of fate um, as a 40-year-old and then just re-examining and in a way, re, I guess, re-geeking myself and sort of re-immersing re myself in all of these fantasy and gaming subcultures, which, you know, from the time that I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, which were very, you know, very much fringe activities, mm -hmm. uh, and to a certain extent, very much shunned, um, you know, lo and behold, due to the popularity of, of 
all kinds of things from Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings to the movies uh, to video games. We see every, you know, virtually every person on the planet with at least some knowledge of this stuff and, and mm -hmm. so many more millions engaged in it and, and getting excited about it. So, mm -hmm. so that's what the book is about. It's a travel memoir and I kind of spend a lot of time visiting different groups, the different representatives of some of these different subcultures and uh, we geek out together and we talk about why we're passionate about it and over the course of the book I'm sort of a member of the tribe once again, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I find that uh, it's something, it's sort of a, a cultural phenomenon that I saw, find so fascinating and largely inexplicable, the, the sort of shunning of uh, of the geek culture that, you know, n not just the shunning of it, but but the, the um, almost obsessive way in which so much of the rest of society wants to sort of wall itself off from that culture, even, you know, wanting to brand it as a subculture uh, and at least by implication a somewhat deviant subculture. Do you... What I mean, you 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 mentioned just now that you know the way in which through things like Peter Jackson's films and uh, you know the rise of of uh, uh, massive uh, online uh, role playing games and things like that, there's been a sort of a resurgence of that culture. Have you have you noticed you know in your sort of thinking and writing and and uh, and and you know, interviewing and stuff about this, have you noticed any shifts or? How would you describe, let me ask it a different way, how would you describe uh, how the kind of main, the, the relationship between mainstream, you know, society and that geek world now, their attitude towards the geek world now compared to maybe in the 80s and, and early 90s? Sure, and this is, I'm sure, something noble you can, you can uh, add to as well, but I mean, certainly, I mean, to a certain extent, I remember based on really just my personal experience, feeling like I was a bit of an outcast and a bit weird for being interested in things like Dungeons and Dragons. But aside from that two or three year period where it seemed like D&D was like the game that every, you know, 12 year old boy in America got under the Christmas tree, you know, right, right. it wasn't as if people really knew what it was other than it, you know, caused you to worship Satan. Um, <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. That, that particular detail was well known, but the rest of yeah, it was yeah. kind of a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, by the yeah. way, I have to cut in because my, a friend of mine just won his second Emmy Award the other day. His name is Andy Bialk, and he did a, uh, this TV show called uh, The Writers of Burke, the Dragon Series. You know what I'm talking about? The, what, how to Train Your Dragon. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he did an interview where he was talking to somebody last week about Dungeons and & Dragons and how his mother said to him that it was Satan's tool. Yeah. And you actually mentioned this in the article, which is hilarious, and I'll I'll put a link up for that. Um, <laughs> just the irony, the irony was 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 that, that that kind of publicity actually you know made it all the more popular and all the more desirable. It had the opposite <laughs> right. effect, right, opposite yeah. effect that uh, Pat Robertson and and whoever else at the time was was railing against it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean it's it's funny. I mean I think to a certain extent there's always going to be um, jocks versus the nerds, and that whole sort of narrative is a popular one in America. Sure. And a lot of movies during that period sort of started to turn that. Um, narrative on its head a little bit and sort of portray the jocks as, as the villains and the nerds were kind of like the ones who were finally getting their you know revenge mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know it's funny I think that uh, I mean surely the internet has, has had a huge role in under bridging people's understandings I feel like it's a societal change it's not over yet there's a lot more progress to be made mm -hmm. but in the same way that people are more accepting of uh, people of different skin or people of different nationalities um, well that's not entirely true but you know better than it was let's say in the 50s or 60s and then of course we 
with, um, you know, gay rights and, and gender rights and so forth, that maybe geek rights has sort of been the next movement and people just get that, you know, there are all kinds of people on this planet and they're interested in all kinds of things and we don't need to single people out for that reason anymore. I mean, whether they like Tolkien or whether they, you know, LARP or whatever. That said, I, there's always going to be ways in which I think the human race is going to find to, you know, make fun of or, mm -hmm. you know, put people into the sort of categories where, you know, someone's at the top of the food chain and someone's at the bottom. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's to me, it's one of the fascinating things about, uh, I mean, you know, I often, you know, students often ask me about this, in particular in relation to academic stuff, you know, like, why is there so much resistance to Tolkien in academia? Um, you know, why is it, you know, do we think that they continue to put out those different permutations of what's the best book in the 20th century poll in the hopes that Tolkien won't win it. And he always does anyway, right, right. you know, yeah. um, but like, it, I mean, it just seems like, you know, academics and literary people just can't handle the fact that Tolkien is clearly the best, you know, the top book of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and the thing is, is that the, the, the particular animus against Tolkien in particular and fantasy in general is I find not really easy to explain. I mean, it's something that mm. I myself am still just kind of making observations about and, um, you know, and trying to think about more. I actually have a, a, a student, a former student of mine and actually current colleague, uh, at Mythgard, uh, Aaron Oust, who is a, a sociology and English double major and is actually uh, sort of working on this, actually doing some, uh, sort of sociological and literary examination into like what, why is it? Cause it's not just that critics dislike or you know pan tolkien but they get obsessive about it and you know it was, it was a point that um uh michael drought a great tolkien scholar made when you know, know yeah, sure. when he said you know he said basically like really smart people uh really smart literary critics who are you know brilliant when talking about other things just seem to get vacuous when talking about Tolkien. They say these things which they would never say about other authors. I mean, just no one would ever go on record. I mean, I, I, I had a colleague uh, once look me in the face and say, I don't think Tolkien should be taught. I've never read it, but I really don't think it should be taught. And I'm sitting here like, of what other book would you ever make those two things without blushing? You know, yeah. say like, I've never read Jane, uh, you know, uh, you know, Jane Eyre, like Charlotte Bronte, never read it, but I don't think it's any good. I mean, no one, no English professor would ever say something except about Tolkien. Then it's okay because it's just, there's something about it that I think it just puts it in a different category. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's probably because it has its roots in sort of children's stories and fairy stories and, you know, folklore and, you know, make-believe, ultimately. I mean, I think it's probably where a lot of that comes from. And I would suspect that over time in the next, it's already changing, and I suspect over time yeah. it's going to be less of an issue. But, I mean, if people can study as a text, you know, they can study Madonna videos or they can study reality TV, I mean, why not Tolkien? And I'm not saying that they're even in the same category. No, of course, of course. I'm, yeah. I'm talking to the converted here already. You guys both believe that, you know, he's worthy. But, but that's, that's really very much true. And I know that there's been a handful of scholars who've tried to take Tolkien seriously over the years. But, um, you know, there's obviously, obviously some resistance. Maybe because it's so popular. It was sort of like the studying Stephen King or something because it's just how could it be good if that many millions of people liked it yeah which is know, Noble do you have any thoughts on that I mean yeah. it seems like that's that's, that's very much <clears throat> not something I individually encounter but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other yeah. other manifestations of the geek and gamer kind of subculture people, yeah yeah people can still dismiss it yeah I was just thinking about how similar twerking and Tolkien sound I, I don't know why that thought just popped <laughs> into my head um, <laughs> 
because twerking's all the rage now, and so is Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you combine the two somehow. If you can combine, you combine the power of both. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's it's it was fascinating to me when I learned that even uh, amongst Tolkien's own colleagues, he was kind of considered to be kind of a crackpot mm-hmm. and um, a second-rate writer. Great his you know, great professor, but you know, he wrote this goofy thing and. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there is this, there certainly was this kind of, especially towards the end of his career, this kind of, uh, I don't think, you know, he didn't receive a whole, I mean, he was a, he was, he was a pretty high rank uh, in Oxford. So, you know, he wasn't uh, looked down on by his colleagues, but there, there was a certain amount of people kind of looking at him and be like, what? Where's your monograph on philology? Why are you spending all the, why have you written, you know, a thousand page book on elves and orcs and things, uh, when you could have been writing, you know, the next great textbook on language, uh, and instead, like, what, 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 what are you spending your time on? Say, so, yeah, there, there, there certainly was that element of things, I think. Uh, well, when I was, uh, in high school, when I was a, well, when I was 12 years old and I first started reading Lord of the Rings, uh, that would have been 1980. And I went into the school library and they had a first edition, first American edition in the school library. And I checked it out and it hadn't been checked out since 1972. Wow. <laughs> okay. So nobody had read it and nobody, I was the first person in my entire class to read the Lord of the Rings. And so it was like this, you know, amazing secret that I had. And I would tell my friends, you have to read this book. Did you steal it? (laughs) I I did steal it, actually. Because it was a funny story because the school... First edition, first edition, I mean, you know. It was a Catholic high school, and they they actually shut the school down my senior year. So I was like, they're just going to put it in a jumble sale. So I went in, and I got all three of them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, so it was like this secret. You know, I had this arcane, uh, mysterious book that nobody else knew about. And I was talking to Ethan about this because Ethan and I have started a a website called Dungeons and Dorkwads. And it's uh, it's sort of... uh, like, explain it. Tell them what it is. It's a kind of, um, n- I mean, partially born of nostalgia, I think, and partially trying to revisit some of the kind of key cultural ephemera and, you know, um, stuff. Mm-hmm. In my particular case, I, I happen to have rediscovered a lot of this old stuff, my old copy of Lord of the Rings and, and, and you know, the Valentine paperback, not a rare one at all. This is crappy one that I had. And right, right. All my Dungeons and Dragons stuff. And, you know, kind of going through this and rediscovering it for me, both in my book, I write about this, but also just, you know, personally, I keep redis- keep discovering more and more of it as I f- uncover new boxes in my closet that, that there's, there's a re- it's a really interesting archaeological, personal yeah. archaeological or pop cultural archaeological uh, exercise. So so we've been looking at some things that people have either sent into us or that I've, a noble of, noble of, of, of discovered and just kind of looking at some of these images images, an old um, lead figurine, you know, or uh, an old dungeon or something like that that someone drew, and just riffing on it and kind of having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this first, uh, uh, this the second dork off, we're calling them, uh, <laughs> where we have this uh, instant messaging dialogue, and then we, we uh, uh, put it together with picture, funny pictures and stuff and post it as a blog. And the second one that we, the first one we did was this guy sent in this beautiful picture of a smog uh, lead figurine that had a broken wing. And it was just this poignant, you know, it was a thing that he had painted in like 1978. And this is a guy who has this website called My Tolkien Books. 
he has the most amazing Tolkien book collection in the world, I think. Anyway, what's so his name? Ethan. Do you uh, his name's Mike uh, Alford. Okay, uh, Mike I don't Alford. know. Oh. Or Mike in the UK. Alford. He's in the UK, right? Is that correct? He's in the UK. Yeah, yeah I actually, I think he lives in Ireland. Okay. Um, but uh, it's mytolkienbooks.com. Okay. Anyway, uh, so Ethan and I just kind of riffed on this. And, you know, of course, Tolkien came up and, and all of these different subjects. And, and the second one that we did was we took one of Ethan's, his, one of your first dungeon maps, right, um, that he had drawn when he was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, and, uh, and talked about this map and what it meant and, and the relationship to, you know, the Mines of Moria and how mm-hmm. um, I, I told Ethan that when I, First, I was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons before the Lord of the Rings. So I was like primed for Middle Earth. And when they got to Moria, I was like, wow, this is so cool because it's just like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and I had no concept that, you know, Gary Gygax, of course, would have read Dungeons and uh, or Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that Tolkien ripped off the indie. I know. That? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's orcs and things. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's really cool. You know, I mean, I think it's, you know, and and just, you know, Ethan, thinking back to some of the things you were saying before, so often people will, people get so dismissive without really being willing to kind of think about it. There's so many interesting things that you can, you know, as you said, going back to things from your own past, you know, so many things that you can see, um, you know, see about yourself and, 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 you know, your, your own, you know, sort of processes and what you were in the middle of, uh, you know, in your own kind of imaginative life at that time, mm-hmm. uh, Dungeons and Dragons campaigns and maps and things are really cool for that, actually. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know, in some ways it's, it's almost more revealing than, uh, you know, than like digging up an old story that you wrote when you were 12 or something. Cause you know, I, at least, at least I, speaking of the stories that I wrote when I was 12, they were all completely derivative. You know, there's, there's, it doesn't actually tell you that much about my imaginative life. It tells you about the books I was reading at the time, you know, and you can see them plainly reflected, uh, in the characters and stories that I was writing. Um, uh, whereas, you know, actually, I think that the, the, the kind of imaginative energy that you put into making your characters and drawing up your character sheets and, uh, and especially if you're designing dungeons and, uh, and, and, uh, uh and designing campaigns and things, uh, there is, there is, there's a, a real fertile ground for creativity there, which I think it would be really fascinating to revisit. And, and also oh, was... that I think that Tolkien, sorry, Tolkien makes, makes people want to be writers. And I think that's yeah. the urge. I look back at I have the exact same thing. I have some very derivative, you know, I usually never got further than about page three, but my, you know, my, I just finished reading this, you know, read the Lord of the Rings again. And I'm going to sit down on my typewriter. Cause at this point in my life, right. I was very into typing. I would type everything out yeah. and I would start writing my version of, you know, some kind of epic fantasy tale. And I wouldn't make it that far, but just the idea that you have such a um, rich, you know, um, here's a guy who's, who, who laid all the groundwork and sort of gave you all the tools and makes mm-hmm. you want to be a storyteller. It's almost like crack for, for writers. You know, you just read this <laughs> stuff and you just you want to like stay up all night and like, you know, write your own version, even though it's, again, if you're 12 or 14 or 16, it's not necessarily going to be that, be that good. But I think that's the, that's the testament uh, 
to, to what he was able to, to know his legacy in a way other than all the other things that he's had influences over. Absolutely. Yeah, if you go to the go to our website dungeonsanddorkwads.com, uh, you can see Ethan's map and also little bits and pieces from his uh, dungeon master key to the map. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I just thought it was like this beautiful relic of childhood, and it re- the the things that he put into his dungeon uh, really showed like a, cr- a, a young mind um, just like bursting with creativity, but also you know ripping off Star Wars, and, like he has <laughs> yeah. a room where the the walls come That's together right. like a nice. smash yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and Star Wars. And, uh, but it, it was really cool, and I, I showed my son, who's nine years old, uh, these maps and his character sheets. And then so today he he sat down and, and made his first uh, dungeon map. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Uh, and, which I, 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 yeah, it's it's really neat. Um, Corey, did you but, play? Did you play D and D as well? I did. Yeah, though I didn't. Uh, I didn't discover it uh, until much later. Than I mean, I, I kind of heard about it. Um, but I didn't really, I would, I didn't have any friends who actually did. For some reason, it was, it kind of, I, I kind of missed it for a while. And then I came across it really in high school, like my freshman year of high school. And then, you know, by that time, I'd already been reading Tolkien for years and everything. So for me at that point, discovering D&D was like, oh my gosh, like, what have I been missing all these years? This is amazing, you know. So I probably I probably made up for lost time in high school, I think, uh, and the number of hours that I spent. And I played, right. I actually played through uh, through college. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, both, 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 both high school and college, I was... Uh, mostly a play because i was new to it and was mostly a player in uh um in yeah i had a i had the you know that made the one friend in college who was an experienced D guy and so he was the one who kind of introduced me to it and he was mostly the uh dungeon master we'd sometimes just play the two of us sometimes with a couple other people um but then in college i was i was co-dming with somebody and ran a very long campaign that lasted almost all four years um well, so you can uh, submit relics yeah. <laughs> to, uh, Dungeons and Dorkwatch. Well, actually, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, Heath Dill, uh, the yeah. author of Medium Rare and Back Again, was in my campaign in college. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. He mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting you said about the about the game and, you know, in, in a certain way for certain people, I think, as much as uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and some of Tolkien's other works were these kinds of seminal works of literature, I think for many people who maybe even never played D&D, but they got that game at some point, you know, mm-hmm. their parents gave it to them because they thought they'd be interested into it, interested in it, and because, because the internet did not exist and it was very hard to connect with people outside of your own little town, wherever you might have lived, it may have been hard to find, you know, similarly minded people who would right. want to play the game, so you were stuck with the Monster Manual, the Dungeon Master's Guide, in your bedroom, and you'd read the thing, and you just right. read it. Yeah. I, have, I have several friends who went on to become writers, poets, musicians, and, and they don't even really remember playing the game. They just remember kind of leafing through the Monster Manual and, like, looking at all these statistics and all the right. information about these monsters and just kind of being transfixed, you know, mm-hmm. that, this, that there could be this such, such this level of detail about, you know, a minotaur or, you know, whatever it would be, whatever the monster was. Yeah. And that, that, that experience alone was enough to kind of give these people a, a kind of supercharged, you know, um, you know, imagination. And, you know, it's really that that I think, you know, people talk about, you know, uh, you know, Noble, as you were mentioning about Gary Gygax being 
you know, a Tolkien reader himself and the obvious impact of that uh, on the conception of D&D. Um, and I think, you know, probably the single biggest element, people often point to the, you know, the particular, the things, you know, the things which are obviously just flatly modeled off of, you, you, you can like point to the passages in Tolkien that he was thinking of, you know, when he wrote those bits in the original Monster Manual. Um, but, uh, but, but, but more than just that, you know, Ethan, what you were just describing about um, the way in which D and I think was so successful because of the way you know all of the 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 complexity of it without it simply dissolving into kind of soulless numbers and statistics, but the way in which it really did draw you into invest in that world and to immerse yourself in this and to and and that's of course the thing that I think really makes Tolkien stand out so much among other authors. You know, I mean, it's it's there are many things, many ways in which Tolkien is exceptional. But to me, the thing that makes him stand out most is the way that he draws his readers to invest, not just in the story that he's telling, not just in the characters that he draws, but in the world that he creates. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, if there's, if there's, uh, if there's, if there's like the number one lesson that Gary Gygax learned from, from Tolkien, it was that, I think. Uh, and that was, I think, the thing that, uh, you know, basically, especially people who were drawn to Tolkien, you know, D&D was like a vehicle to do that thing that they really wanted to do, which was immerse themselves more fully in that world. Um, so, you know, being able to use D&D as a kind of imaginative portal uh, to uh, to really invest, uh, you know, uh, uh, just immerse yourself more fully, I think was something that was really satisfying uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. And you could and you could in, interact with it in the way you wanted to. So the, the idea of just going around and killing things and kind of maxing out your character and sort of becoming the most popular, uh, sorry, most popular, <laughs> most powerful, maybe popular as well, uh, you know, character you could be and, and, and kind of being obsessed with the, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of the, the number crunching parts yeah. of the game. Yeah. Or if you just wanted to, you know, draw maps and sort of dream and start to write little stories. And, and I guess in a way that that game, so much like the way Tolkien, for me anyway, you know, got me interested in other ideas or other subject matter, you know, so I would read Tolkien and think about, well, then how, do, how was this influence? How, how was he influenced? And then I would read the things that Tolkien read that right. influenced him. Or I would read about these different kinds of, you know, I don't know, siege weapons or, you know, God knows what. And that would bring me to, you know, the encyclopedia and I learned about Roman history or something. So it was mm -hmm. both of those, and I guess they're not the only authors. But if you think of Gygax and Arneson and then Tolkien as being kind of the, the people behind these very rich worlds that you mm -hmm. can interface with in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like a really neat project. I think the, one, of the other, one, of, one of the other cool things that I think that so many people have in their, their past is like a map that they did of, of their world mm -hmm. that they were creating, their fantasy world. And uh, mine, of course, and, and I've seen many other Tolkien fans, they, they did these very Christopher Tolkien-esque maps. Right. Uh, that distinctive mountain and, you know, big lake and the rivers. And um, and they were ridiculously derivative of, of Tolkien, but uh, it was so much fun uh, to do to create a, a world, not just a, like a dungeon map, but an entire continent right. and races. And, you know, and, and then you start thinking about the backstory. And then I would always come to the conclusion when I was a kid that I would never be able to come up with something 
as rich as what Tolkien did. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I would stop doing that math and I'd be like, oh, that sucks. Um, <laughs> but I think that's the amazing thing about The Lord of the Rings is like, I've been reading it out loud to my son all year and we just got to, uh, uh, Gandalf and Pippin just got to Minas Tirith. Oh, nice. And, um, and I just, I keep finding things that I missed before. And I don't know if it's because this time I'm reading it out loud and you read mm-hmm. things differently when you do read them out loud. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm, I'm always just like, oh my God, I, I just can't believe I, I didn't see that. Mm. Are you doing voices for different characters? So do you do the Yes, yes, voice? young hobbit. So this is my <laughs> Gandalf voice. <laughs> <laughs> and Pippin's sort of like this. I, I don't stoop to doing like bad yeah. British accents. But... <laughs> yeah. Do you do you sing the songs? Oh yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. Especially if it's like an orc song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I wanted to uh, mention that uh, I got an advanced copy of the... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 the new Illustrated Hobbit, yeah. The new Illustrated Hobbit Beautiful. by Jemima Catlin, and I wrote a review about it on my Shire Wisdom site, and I, I just think it's one of the most beautiful editions that's ever been done. There's about 150 pictures in here. Wow, wow. And they're, 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 some of them are, are, are big, you know, full-page illustrations mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. And other ones are just these little tiny uh, things like marginal drawings. Right. And uh, they're just so cool because, like, here's one. Bilbo washing the dishes with this sort of... And when is it when is it coming out or is it is it just about to it's be coming out in a couple of weeks okay, okay. Uh, in the United States it's already out in the UK mm-hmm. um, but it's just a fabulous book you, anybody who's a, a, a lover of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit uh, will want this to sit on their bookshelf so cool sweet yeah and she she approached it with this kind of whimsical um, almost uh, kind, of, kind of in the style of, of Tolkien's watercolors and line drawings from mm-hmm. his illustrated version of the Hobbit <clears throat> I was going to say that, uh, especially the barrel picture that you just displayed, reminds me very much of of uh, Tolkien's watercolor. Of uh, he, you know, he did like six different versions of Bilbo on the barrel in the river. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, like, here's a great one of, of Gandalf just sitting there smoking his pipe, at Bjorn's blowing oh, yeah. smoke rings, and and the and the goblins look really funny. And so it's it's almost like she, you know, said, I'm going to I'm going to make something that's more uh, that kids would really like. Right. Right. Um, but then she thought it, she did these little details that are that are from the, the book. Um, but nobody has ever illustrated before. Um, and I want to find it's this is after Bilbo loses his buttons. Ah, um, the orcs finding the buttons. Um, on the, the, buttons. Yeah, the goblins. Yeah. 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 I just I just love little things like that. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. Jemima Catlin. Um, and it's put out by uh, HarperCollins. So. Yeah, yeah. You should talk about your book a little bit, Noble, or both of your books, since you have a Tolkien-related book and a non, non-Tolkien, but maybe Tolkien-influenced Yeah, well, um, I, I wrote this book called The Wisdom of the Shire, and I have this is the, the paperback that just came, came out in the U.K. Cool. Oh, cool. And um, the, the U.S. paperback is coming out uh, October 31st. And so Ethan's, when I read Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, I felt like Ethan had kind of written a book for me <laughs> because I had put all of my D&D stuff, my Tolkien stuff, kind of pushed it aside when I went off to college. Um, and I felt like um, that part of my life had kind of vanished. And 
uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was driving down the freeway after a horrible job interview and uh, fighting through traffic. And I thought, what am, why am I living like this? This is pathetic. What, who did I want to emulate when I was a kid? Uh, who, who, were, who were the people that, that I looked up to in, in, in literature in this, you know, this grand story that I had been so in love with? And it was <laughs> and I, it just hit me like a flash and I, I, I got home and I was like because I, I thought of writing this book when I was a kid when the Tao of Pooh came out right. you guys remember that book? <clears throat> yeah yeah. And sure, yeah, I thought, yeah somebody yeah. should do the Tao of Hobbits and so that was my idea that I had 30 years ago when I was 12 years old and so a couple of years ago I started working on this thing and, and what it is is it's how can you live a better life by emulating hobbits. Mm -hmm. They're the exemplars of good friends and people that, who love to eat and have fun. They, they can be courageous when they have to be, but they're peace-loving. They live in a, a sustainable place, the Shire, mm -hmm. and they practice sufficiency. And all of that's there in the, you know, the, the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, so all of the chapters are about you know, things like eat like a hobbit and sleep like a hobbit mm -hmm. and um, uh, garden like a hobbit. And so I'm, I, I wrote this book, and, and uh, it, it was translated into eight languages, which I think is really cool, including Finnish. Nice. Was the, Very appropriate. Yeah. One of the elven languages we're based on. Yeah, Quenya, yeah. Quenya. Yeah. And uh, actually, I have the Finnish version right here. It's called Konum Kutut and it really does look and sound like Elvin. Can you see the right there? It does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, like it could be that's the wisdom of the Shire in a, in a nutshell. And so it's sort of like, it, it's funny because uh, Ethan's book was about Dungeons and Dragons and a lot about the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien. And um, I decided to leave Dungeons and Dragons out of my book completely because he had already covered that. Um, but then Ethan interviewed me uh, when the Wisdom of the Shire came out and we started talking, uh, you know, chatting over email and stuff. And it's funny, one of the first emails I ever sent him was a, a, a minifigure that I had painted. <laughs> Do you remember that? And I, I was do, like, yeah, look at yeah. my dragon. And, uh, anyway, it's funny because this is the first time we've ever actually seen each other. Uh, you know, we talked to each other um, on any kind of video chat kind of thing. And we started this website together. Yeah. <laughs> and we're hoping to someday meet in person. Yeah. Live, and, you know, and, in a whole other part of the Middle Earth. So it's a little hard. Right. I did. But I used to live in his part of the Shire in, uh, in Somerville, Massachusetts. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just and, up in Southern now, New Hampshire now too uh, here. So uh, Ethan oh, you, and I are quite close yeah, to each other. But yeah, okay. yeah. You guys have that New England connection. That's right. That's right. Have you have you gone leaf peeping yet? <laughs> uh, no. See, I'm not, I'm totally a native, which means that I complain about the leaf peepers. So that's, that's, right. that's yeah, right. You just yeah. grouse about them and exactly how they're how they're ruining the view and well, mostly how they're slowing down the traffic is, is right. the chief exactly. thing. There's nothing right. quite like trying to get to work when you're late and you're behind somebody cruising along at 15 miles an hour under the speed limit because they're looking at the trees. That's always uh, that's a that's a it's a New Hampshire experience. So. Anyway, I'm going to plug your book now. <laughs> Yeah, so thanks. I, I loved, and, and we talked about this the last time we we did uh, an audio yeah. chat, the three of us, which never got aired. But um, your riddles in the dark chapter is one of my favorite examinations of of Tolkien's work ever. I, I think it's brilliant. Oh well, thanks. I, you know, I just it's something. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> you know, when talking about um, you know doing doing analysis of Tolkien's 
work and stuff like that. You know, people will often be, you know, say like, oh, you know, like, thanks for your insights on that. And like, I, I don't feel like I like bring to the book, like some particular insights. Like there's nothing that I go into it like meaning to say, or I don't have anything that I'm sort of trying to, I just, what I love doing is um, sort of discovering things, you know, no, but just like you were just, you know, talking about when you were, you know, so I was, I was smiling when you were talking about, you know, all the new things that you were noticing as you were reading through the book uh, and reading it to your son, you know, like that's the experience I have every time I teach Tolkien uh, and every time, you know, and so writing the book, was like much more so. I mean, you know, I, I sort of finished writing the book and I, and I mean that chapter, I remember writing that. I remember where I was sitting when I wrote that chapter and, and you know, at the end of it, I sat down and had the same experience I usually have where I was like, Whoa, that's pretty cool. I never noticed that before. You know, it's just, uh, you know, when, you know, I, I find that Tolkien is so rewarding. If you just sort of stop and really, you know, pay attention and look carefully, especially at the poetry, um, you know, and, be, and really kind of, uh, you know, just sort of think through what's really there and not take stuff for granted. So much stuff just kind of opens out and there's so much to talk about. It's, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, that was definitely, <clears throat> that was definitely a really fun chat. I was, I was very much looking forward to that chapter because of the, uh, um, because of all the verse in particular. Uh, and it was, and it was going to be a, a fun process. You know, I was kind of challenging myself, you know, don't, don't take any riddle lightly, you know, do, you know, even the ones that seem really simple, you know, really sort of, you know, think about it. How do they go together? What do we, you know, what do we see? Um, and, uh, anyway, that was, it was certainly a lot of fun. I have an interesting question for you guys. You know, obviously we're here and we're talking about this and we're, we're part of your, your, um, Mythgard empire now, I guess, in a way. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously we're all fans of Tolkien and we're, we would never, you know, um, do anything to belittle his, his work. But I'm, I'm wondering for both of you what you find to be the least successful part of his writing or something that he got wrong or something that just angers you every time you read it. How or... dare you even say something? <laughs> Um, you're a horrible person. I know. I know and I know that he's been taken to task for, you know, certainly for not being, um, you know, more inclusive of women or, you know, sort of having somewhat stereotypical views of, of people of other races, um, which, which, which may or may not have been, you know, his own thinking. And, you know, I, I, li I like to give him a pass on that because it was just the age that he grew up in and the kind of, yeah, I mean, kind of, kind of place he came from. Well, exactly. Um, the sort of expectation that modern people have a, that, you know, the kind of, the kind of, you know, sort of demographic inclusiveness that we expect, um, you know, and to sort of retroactively impose that as a standard upon previous authors, you know, that's right. just uh, not, doesn't make any sense, actually. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I yeah, th that's, that's one that I find, you know, s simply the, like, you know, why are all of Tolkien's characters white is... <sighs> I think a question that I never find a very interesting one. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. the answer is because he was writing in, a, you know, something that was set in the northern part of Middle Earth. And he was, you know, and so he was, it's, people are essentially like Nordic and just sub-Nordic. So they're mostly white. Like that he was where he was functioning largely in the Germanic tradition. So, I mean, like that's, it's but I don't find that a very interesting, I find it not a very interesting question, yeah, <laughs> not a very yeah, interesting yeah. answer to the question, really. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. But I guess, you know, one thing that I would say, one thing that um, I, you, know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned women, and I, I, I want, want to be cautious about this because, you know, I've many times, I mean, I, I, 
I've many times spoken against what I find to be a very, very facile criticism of Tolkien on that point. You know, again, people who point to merely lack of representation, you know, like they're do, people who are simply counting noses and complaining that there aren't more females. And I don't find that a very interesting observation. Much more interesting to me is the role that they are given and the way that he describes those that he does. To, you know, um, let's not, you know, again, let, let's get past counting noses and actually look at, you know, Eowyn and Galadriel and Arwen and Luthien and, uh, you know, and Morwen and, you know, and, uh, uh, and um, all these other characters and actually think about what he does say about women. Um, but, but having said that, I, you know, I would say one of the things which at least puzzles me is why... Again, it's not why he didn't include more female characters, but you know, the 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 complaint that people make, which is harder to dispute, is you know why why are so often the women in his books you know distant, remote, and up on pedestals? A lot of people want to go and say, oh, you know, his mom died when he was young, and so it's like a mommy thing, um, and I'm you know I'm. I'm willing to believe that that factors into some of it, but you actually look at his life and his, his, you know, his relationship with his wife, uh, you know, of so many years. And not only that, but the many female colleagues and students he had and with whom he had, you know, fairly robust intellectual relationships. Um, you know, his own, his own life doesn't reflect that kind, you know, it's, one is tempted to say, well, you know, he was an Oxford Don and he was kind of, uh, you know, hanging out with the guys down at the pub, you know, the, the, the kind of more, uh, you know, sort of casual friend to friend relationship with women that might perhaps lead him to include female characters who were not so kind of, uh, you know, remote and archetypal in the way that so many of his female characters are indeed, um, that way. Uh, I guess people might, might want to find a biographical, to, to sort of excuse that on biographical grounds, but I don't think there is biographical grounds for that. Mm -hmm. He did, in fact, have that kind of relationship with women, and yet still chose not to, um, to, to I mean, in almost none of it, it's not just The Lord of the Rings or The Silmarillion, um, in almost none of his works do we see um, that kind of relationship between men and women, that kind of depiction of women at all. And, I, and, and I'm at the very least kind of puzzled as to why he never, um, you know, tried his hand. Even I mean, like, how often does the point of view in his work ever come near a female character? I think never, actually. I don't, I can't think of a single time when that ever happens. Um, so anyway, that, that's again. It's I, I. So although I do, I do sometimes get frustrated with some what what I consider sort of overly simplistic um, critiques of Tolkien on those grounds. There are definitely things there that that uh, that I don't fully get, and I think that he kind of could have stretched himself a little bit more in that way. I think in some ways. Well, you have to remember he was typing with two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Though he still managed to produce a million words for the Lord of the Rings yeah. that way. <laughs> he actually typed that manuscript.
Man, he typed that manuscript twice. Yeah. Two yeah. Things. yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to say, and his secretary didn't either. He did it himself. Right. He yeah. Exactly. Think, we think anyway. No, yeah, I was going to just say that. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, his secretary wasn't good enough. <laughs> right. Right. Couldn't trust her. Couldn't trust her. But I was thinking just in terms of you just rereading it aloud to your son, whether you felt at any point like, oh, I, yeah, you know, this is not really, this is not a value or not a, an idea or not a, I don't know. I can't think of what, it, I can't even do an example myself, but as, as you were going through it again, it, you know, pretty slow pace, it sounds like if you're going to read it aloud. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing that kills my son is when he gets into the, the descriptive, you know, narrative, narration of landscape. Yes. And yeah. he's yeah. like, oh, God, are they walking again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just walked through like 20 leagues yeah um but yeah so what were you going to say Ethan what, what's uh something that well that was I mean I was thinking a lot about um really more comparing it to modern works because I think that as modern readers we're much less patient mm -hmm. and honestly I think the marketplace is much less patient so yes. today if his I mean a lot of I think someone else said this more eloquently than, than than I but like if he had tried to sell the books today oh my goodness um you know the ideas might be great and people might say, oh, there's a market for this because, you know, fantasy is very popular, but we need to get to the, you know, inciting event much sooner. You know, you can't have this 50 page section at the beginning of the first book where yeah. Tom Bombadil goes on. Gotta you know, go. Right. Yeah. Tom Bombadil's got to go. Yeah. All these kinds of things. And, and that's obviously, I think, the lesson of the movies is that it does show you that when you, when you have to adapt this into something that does have to fit into a smaller box, you know, with yeah. the hour. Although Peter Jackson made the box as big as you could make it, and, <laughs> right? Uh, kept cramming more things into it, and the box set is is quite big. Uh, but you know that you, and in a way, that's kind of sad because I, what I love about the fact that he didn't really have an editor—I mean, he did have an editor—but they didn't edit his work in the same way they would do, would today. Mm -hmm. Did give him a lot of leeway to yeah to do some things that don't really almost more like a modernist novel that would that would have some things that are just kind of there for for show or for fun or for you know they don't necessarily advance the plot yeah um, and that's you know thinking you know ethan exactly as you were saying about you know any kind of hesitations when reading it aloud even with the hobbit there are moments and there are fewer moments like that in the hobbit than, than in the lord of the rings but they're still even right. there in the hobbit yeah. and when i read i haven't read the lord of the rings to to my son yet um but uh we've read the hobbit and even reading The Hobbit, there are definitely times when I could sense him being like, okay, this description is going on for a while, and I'm, you know, I'm just, so I'll, I'll kind of be like, I'll try to give a really impassioned reading of it to try to engage his <laughs> attention and stuff, but I'm kind of aware that I'm straining, you know, to keep his attention to that. And I do, I mean, I do think that that really does speak to you know changes in our culture and changes in our and our entertainment forms and things um mm -hmm. as much as to anything else though i mean again it's not like oh back in the day all books were like that because that was one of the big complaints everybody had about it at the time when it came out that's i mean right. that's yeah. one of the main reasons the critics you know the critics who panned it it's one of the main things they pointed to was like you know all of this you know description um that's actually interesting in the the myth card class i'm doing the uh the open myth card class on the two towers right now i just uh, have been in the last two class sessions doing some of those descriptions of athelian as they're going through athelian and looking at some of the way you know when we actually stop and read those and we can begin to see how he's actually sort of molding those descriptions to give us sort of thematic and emotional cues as well as just to you know put us in touch with the landscape that they're walking through so if we actually sort of stop and look at those things we can sort of see that there really is you know value there is substance there it's not just Tolkien and indulging in description of plants um mm -hmm. though i think there's plenty of that too uh yeah. but anyway um 
but certainly there, you know, that, that is something. If 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 there's anything in reading Tolkien to my kids that kind of makes me squirm a little bit, it's those passages. You know, when yeah. I sort of feel like oh, I'm going to lose them. There's lots of gorse in the film. <laughs> Much gorse, yes, a great deal <laughs> of gorse. gorse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, and you have to look up a lot of those plants. You're like, yes. I really don't know what gorse is. Yeah, but... and nor do I still to this day know what a saxifrage is. Though <laughs> I, I I love the saxifrages because it's such a fun <laughs> word. I, I I look forward to getting to the saxifrages in Athelian every time we get there, but I still don't know what they are. Yeah, so just, it's certainly not helping me visually. Uh, you know, picture this yeah. uh, or but, or you know, or the uh, or the or the pungent terebinth, for instance. No idea. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what a terebinth is and what makes it pungent. But uh, there we go. That's great. I think it, what I always tell my son is that Tolkien thought this place was real. Yeah. And it was so real to him. And he knew where every waterfall was, every bramble patch, you know, mm-hmm. every footpath. Um, it, he just knew it. And so he had to describe that. Otherwise, he would have felt like he was get, giving it short trip. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, it's also an argument that has been made, especially by, um, you know, Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull and all the work they've done with Tolkien's uh, paintings and illustrations. I think it's pretty clear that Tolkien had a very visual imagination. Um, and as he was writing these things and conceiving these stories, he was primarily picture. He had, the, he had a picture of it in his head. So he clearly was immersing himself in what it would actually look like, not just, and then they crossed over this terrain, but, you know, what was the ground like? You know, what, what kind of plants would you see as you walked around? He had that picture, that visual picture, so clearly in his head, and that's what he was trying to, to sort of get the reader to be able to enter into to the same kind of visual detail that he had in his own head. And that's why he explained, that's why he, he, he loved to do the paintings uh, and to, to make his own illustrations because it was again, another way in which he was trying to kind of work through uh, and, and, and uh, demonstrate the, the way that he, you know, had it pictured in his head. Yeah. And if he hadn't done such a great job doing that, then John Howe and, and Alan Lee wouldn't have had this wealth of material to draw from. And they mm-hmm. never would have been able to, I think, do uh, the, the amazing artwork that they did, you know, pre uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, films and during. Yes. Although, I don't know, did John Howe actually do any, like, uh, Tolkien art before? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was uh, the, one of the official illustrators for some time. I just actually finished finally putting together this interview that I had with him that came out shortly after The Hobbit, the first oh, Hobbit cool. movie came out. And it's taken a while to get it together and get it edited and, and find a home for it. But it's look, looking like it's going to be on uh, Boing Boing pretty soon uh, in the next week or two. Cool. That's cool. And uh, we, we sat down via Skype. He was in um, Switzerland at the time. It was just after the first Hobbit movie came out. And he, he and I sat down and chatted. We talked a lot about this, uh, these very issues about you know how do you how do you visualize that world in a way that feels uh, loyal to what Tolkien had uh, wanted or the way he described it in the book, and then you know making that transition to the world of movies. Uh, maybe this is our segue to talk about the movie. I don't know, but you know thinking about yeah. that that process, the visual process, and it does help us so much. I think that well helps and hurts. I guess in a way, it's great that Tolkien had that visual that visual ability and was an artist. Um, yeah. But those those images that Tolkien painted are kind of locked into the consciousness, and they kind of are this high standard like if it doesn't look exactly like the way you know Tolkien drew it even though he's I mean, he was a good artist he wasn't a great artist but I think right. he's a good artist right right um you know then 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 how much of that is a violation and then you go further than that uh, obviously some of the choices that Peter Jackson made uh, have not 
have not been received well because of that, you know, people's ideas of what they had in their head. Yes. So don't live up, the, the, the film with Persian does not live up to what people had in their head. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and take that, uh, cue and talk about the films a little bit. Um, you know, one thing, uh, Noble, I was thinking back to your story about uh, the, that copy of The Lord of the Rings that was uh, in your school library that nobody had read for so many years. Um, and that's actually, I think, a wonderful illustration. Like, I, it's, it's impossible for me to imagine that there is any such book in a school library in the last 10 years. You know, I, I can't, you know, that, and, and that's, that, that's one thing that I always come back to, you know, when people say, what do you think about the films? You know, and I've heard Tolkien scholars say, I think the films are awful and they never should have been made. And uh, the whole thing is just a travesty. And I'm just thinking, you know, look, I, to me, I don't care what people think about the films. The films, now, I don't think the films are universally awful, but even if I did think the films were universally awful, um, I still, it is absolutely undeniable that it has been a huge net gain for Tolkien. There are so many people that have discovered the books um, after the film, either, you know, either through the films or simply after the films, now that it has uh, you know, taken not only just, you know, sort of retaken a place in our culture, but really taken a new place in our culture since the films. Um, that, I mean, it's, it's, there are so many of my students and now even increasingly so many of graduate students, so many of the next generation of Tolkien scholars that I've met first were exposed to Tolkien by watching the films, you know, and that's, you know, to me, that's worth uh, any number of uh, uh, objectionable individual dis adaptation decisions <laughs> in the actual making of the film. Yeah. Um. What do you guys? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Awkward silence. <laughs> what do you guys well, think about that? Well, no, sorry. Noble, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I, I, I have the uh, the film book for the Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hobbit. Yeah. And th this thing has you know a place in my heart because I saw the I read the book first and then I saw the movie back when I was a kid. Um, and I tried to to watch the the Bakshi version recently with my son. And it was really bad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible. And when you think about how a feature film production could have turned out, or let's just take The Hobbit, since yeah. you know second one is coming out soon. Um, the fact that we got to have a scene that's uh, several minutes long with dwarves singing a lament about the Lonely Mountain that ends with this stunning shot of sparks going yeah. out of a, a chimney yeah. into the stars. And, I mean, it's beautiful filmmaking. Yeah, they made some weird decisions with the story, you know, trying to stretch it out and add characters, and the bunny sled was crazy. Um, but I think that when all three films are done, people will, will see it as a, a masterpiece of filmmaking. And hopefully somebody will do, you know, a 20-hour Hobbit on HBO someday. <laughs> You know, that makes sense, which makes sense. I yeah, mean, that's, that's because of just the popularity of the sort of serial drama on television and <clears throat> how that's becoming just where some of the best filmmaking is being done now is on television. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anyway. I, I think The Lord of the Rings would lend itself very well to that kind of a format. I mean, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, that it's it's only going to be a matter of time before somebody else will do The Lord of the Rings again and we'll get, you know, an, a new sort of reboot of it. And, you know, I, but I, I at least... You know, who knows? Maybe things will be different in five or ten years when that happens. But I, 
I that that's that's the medium I would expect it to happen in. I will watch it. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's and the thing. As much as go ahead. No, no, you go. Oh, so as much as I, I I did complain about the first um the first Hobbit movie somewhat, I was I was disappointed, and I think I think it had a lot to do with my general love of the movies and mm-hmm. the, of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah. that Peter Jackson did, and and partly because those those movies helped me in a very personal way that is not mm-hmm. at all universal. Helped me myself reappreciate Tolkien because right. I had. You know, Right. put them on the shelf for so many years so having seen the movies and getting excited about watching those movies and generally being pretty pretty much swept into that sort of mania when those movies came out it helped me um you know kind of re reestablish my my interest in this whole genre and 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 so it, it emotionally had a big impact on me in a way that weirdly movies don't typically do mm-hmm. uh, and so coming into that screening you know i do film reviews for the boston globe so i get to see these movies usually a, a couple weeks in advance and i was, yeah, you know, I was so, so jealous, excited dude. yeah well you know and i get to see the see the uh, uh, the first hobbit movie and came you know all kind of pumped up but it was not a, a big theater full of hundreds of people it was just me and you know 50 critics and other vips and um and i just kept going oh this isn't this isn't doing it it isn't making me feel the same way that the first movies right. did and that and that's of course an absurd right expectation right you know, there's no way that that can be re, can be re, um, recreated that exactly no because the bar is so changed i mean i remember my primary first reaction is watching the fellowship of the ring in the theater for the first time was in particular, my, you know, thinking back to our comments about the landscape descriptions, was was my response to the landscapes. You know, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, they would show the Shire, they would show the Misty Mountains, you know, the, and I would say, that's that's perfect. You know, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the ruins in Holland and the Argonauts and, and it's just like, that. you know, that's, that's, ex- they've got it. That's exactly it. You know, and there, of course, yeah, there were, yeah. a bu- you know, the, obviously there were a bunch of places in the story that I was kind of scratching my head and to this day continue scratching my head about yeah, actually. Sure. Um, but, but, you know, but that was that first reaction, you know, it's like, like, you know, I'd always, uh, you know, it, they, they, they really captured um, so much, especially in their sets and their costumes and their, uh, and their scenery. And, but, but that's exactly, you know, Ethan, the kind of thing that you, you can't have that experience again, you know, now that we're acclimated to that, now that we have this standard of expectation of what it's going to look like and how it's going to be, um, uh, you know, without that, I'm just left with the with the head scratching, you know, as far as you know, to mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, it's yeah. funny you mentioned the landscapes because I feel like that in the same way that when when I think of my attachment and sort of emotional or imaginative relationship to a role playing game like D and D, which was about the places and sort right. of imagining the spaces and sort right. of putting myself, projecting myself astrally, sort of into that world. <laughs> it, was, it was enough to just see that space, even though I knew that it was New Zealand, and even I even though I yeah. knew that these were sets that you know didn't exist. Um, you know, in reality, um, there was something about seeing a, that world visually because the visual image is so powerful. And yeah. and that's one thing that I think a lot of people do worry about is to what extent does the visual image just in our culture become so, right. be, become more powerful than it maybe deserves to be and mm-hmm. taking over the, the power of the written word. Um, but that was just, that was something that I was, I was completely enraptured in. And it did, I mean, it, to the point that it, it inspired me to go to New Zealand myself for, mm-hmm. for three weeks and visit as many of the locations as I could where they'd filmed it and, and kind of just commune with those places and do stupid fan things just to kind of feel like I wanted to be, you know, to be part of it and like to 
say, I stood in the place where, right. you know, Orlando Bloom stood when this publicity photo was taken, you know, right. the, whatever it was, it stood in for, you know, Rivendell or something. So that was, that was something that I found myself getting weirdly, obsessively, you know, sucked into that I was completely um, uh, surprised about it. And, and then when the Hobbit movie was announced and everything leading up to it, I found myself going down that rabbit hole again and right. looking at the trailer and like sort of analyzing it frame by frame and going, well, what does this mean? And what could this mean? And mm -hmm. what does this, what does this decision mean? And, um, and, and that kind of, that kind of stuff is in, in some ways can be a setup for, for, you know, a bit of a letdown. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, I would argue that they, the filmmakers for an unexpected journey actually stayed truer to the Hobbit text yes. than they did for the Fellowship of the Ring. Yes. And, and, and which is kind of strange and ironic when you think about it. Um, cause so many people have had your reaction where they're just, um, kind of like, it, I just didn't, it didn't, I didn't connect to it as much. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it could be an age thing too. I mean, we were both in our early thirties. Were you like 33 when Fellowship came out? Um, yeah. yeah, when how old was I? Something like that, three, five. Yeah, I uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't know. It's funny. I mean, I'm not looking as forward to uh, the desolation of Smaug as I was the two towers. Mm. Um, but I'm really excited because my, my nine-year-old son is so excited. Yeah. Well, and that's too, you get to see it sort of through his, through his eyes and through his reactions, which is yeah. very cool. Yeah. And I just read something. And I wanted to ask you, Corey, if you'd heard about this, um, that somebody leaked something, I think it was on the one ring.net that um, the first scene of the desolation of Smaug is going to be a flashback to the prancing pony and, it's Thorin and Gandalf, and it's the the scene from uh, Unfinished Tales. From Unfinished Tales, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. When the one that's alluded to in Appendix A with the meeting of Thorin and Gandalf at the Prancing Pony, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, that's interesting. Um, uh, <laughs> Had you heard that yet? I hadn't actually. I'm sort of mm. thinking about that. I wonder how they're going to integrate that into the. Because they already have a frame, you know, that is the frame of Bilbo writing this story and narrating that opening sequence right. because he's writing this book, which he won't let Frodo read yet. Um, so the whole point of the story of Thorin meeting Gandalf in Appendix A was Gandalf telling the story not from Bilbo's point of view, you know, basically Gimli and Frodo and Gandalf sitting around in Minas Tirith after the War of the Ring uh, and them asking, so, you know, thinking back to that whole there and back again thing, how did that come about, Gandalf? You know, what's the backstory there? Um, why Bilbo? What, how did this happen? And Gandalf's like, well, I'll tell you the real story. Here's how it happened. I, you know, I met with Thorin, you know, so basically like the whole point is that that's the non-Bilbo as storyteller framed right. version of the story. Um, so how they're going to integrate that frame within what is what they've already introduced as explicitly a Bilbo narrated frame is a question that I that I know how they're going to do it. I know how yeah? they're going to do it. Okay, we're going to have that whole scene, and then it's going to come to some dramatic moment, and then it's going to be cut, and Bilbo's going to wake up. It'll <laughs> be in bed, and he will have dreamt the whole thing. <laughs> oh. Just a dream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's true though, because the whole point of view thing is—I mean—that's what's so interesting about Tolkien—is there's all this sort of very 
I think it's very postmodern. Yeah. Like, oh man. Time, you know, very interesting frames of yeah. Sort of this isn't really what was being written, and I'm yep. just the sort of translator or sorry transcriber of this thing. I oh, found. absolutely. We're not, we're not really sure what yeah. really happened here. Yeah. The so levels of meta narrative in Tolkien yeah. are at least as as complex as anything you'll find in any yeah. postmodern yeah. Uh, author. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, another no, reason why people shouldn't dismiss it because even though you may not care for the subject matter, but just the structure and the oh, it's the, yeah, sort of literary literary stuff that he was playing with is, is absolutely, stuff. absolutely, and uh, and you know, and, and by this is where I think um, this is why, by the way, I was ecstatic. I remember way, way, way back, like two years ago now or something, um, you know, well in advance of the first film when it was first leaked out that there he was going to bring Elijah Wood back. Um, mm. And there was this sort of initial uproar of like, oh, my gosh, Frodo's going to be in The Hobbit. What are they thinking? This is going to be a disaster. And I was like, no, wait. OK, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think that's awesome. Actually, I'm reasonably sure that because, as, you know, I was I was assuming that meant we're going to get a frame. We're, 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 we're going to get a Bilbo and Frodo in bag end uh, frame for the narrative. And I loved I, I loved the idea that they were going to include at least some level of that kind of meta narrative uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, what Jackson did in the first Hobbit film with the with the meta narrative stuff is very different from what Tolkien does. The way that he framed it in, in the beginning of the first Hobbit film in this almost confessional mode, you know, that instead of having it being something that he wrote years before and showed to Frodo and read to him, but then eventually took off with him to Rivendell to complete, the idea that it's something he's composing on the eve of the party before he's before he goes away and won't let Frodo read it, you know, presumably until afterwards, gives it this whole, like last will and testament kind of sense to it like it's it's like his confessional okay frodo i never told you this while we were living together but now like i will tell you the real story which frames it i think in a in in, in a very different way but it's very evocative and interesting i'm going to be interested i'm going to be I'm, I'm 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 keenly anticipating the end of the last film to see how they're going to bring the frame back around again um Especially with the way that he dovetailed, uh, you know, in a way that which was a little bit forced, I, I felt. But anyway, interesting, theoretically interesting, the way that he kind of dovetailed it into the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring movie with Frodo, you know, setting off to go meet Gandalf on the road. So right, right. where does that leave us then at the end? Are we going to come back to the long expected party? You know, are we going to get, you know, at what point do we return to the frame? Do we return to him in Rivendell? Closing, closing the, you know, gray haired, uh, Bilbo in, in, in Rivendell closing the book, do we get, you know, the, I don't know. And I was, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of interesting to see the way that it's framed because he's definitely put kind of more at stake, um, in, um, in doing it that way. But anyway, yeah, I, I, you know, Noble, this kind of comes back to what you were saying about, you know, that thinking that they actually did a more careful adaptation of the book in the Hobbit film than they did in the Lord of the Rings films. And I, I completely agree. Um, it's, and, and for me, you know, you know, Ethan. I think back to the the sort of the differences that you were talking about about the the impact, sort of the personal impact of seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I I definitely did not bring to the Hobbit film anything like the kind of you know personal excitement, you know, just on a fan level that I brought to the films when they were first released. Um, but instead, uh, you know, my main fo- focus has been you know sort of. Uh, more literary, you know, just, you know, doing kind of analysis of the story and the way that they're doing adaptation. And I was at many points in the Hobbit film, uh, finding myself becoming 
really impressed. Like there were a couple moments in the Hobbit film where I said to myself, wow, that, that's a really careful reading of that passage in the text. Like they're really paying attention to the text carefully there, not just slavishly, you know, trying to depict it on screen. But having really thought about the impact, um, you know, about sort of what's going on in that passage and really trying to translate that um, to the screen. Um, you know, I think, for instance, of um, one of the scenes which was like every critic's least favorite moment in the first Hobbit film, that scene which seems like it takes about 45 minutes of uh, of Bilbo, you know, of Martin Freeman walking silently around Bag End the morning after the, you know, the, the dwarves show up. And, and it just seems like, it goes on and on forever as he's just kind of walking through Bag End and looking around. But the way that they dealt with, you know, the, you know, one of the things that I talked about in my book, the whole Took and Baggins thing, that kind of internal divide in Bilbo and his internal struggle, they were really, it was really interesting and thoughtful the way that they did that in the film. And again, there were very few occasions on which my reaction to the Lord of the Rings films included the reaction, oh, that's a really subtle reading of the text. I just never had that, re almost never had that reaction. Um, and again, it's not to say that I didn't, I mean, I agree with you, certainly, uh, that some of the, some of the decisions were a little bit odd uh, in the Hobbit film. I, 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 I'm no, uh, no enormous fan of the bunny sled myself, but um, they, but but yeah but they they you know I was I really liked it and was enthusiastic about it primarily because for, for what I was most mostly interested in for what I was going in with you know I had my whole checklist of uh, you know stuff that I had thought about about the kind of adaptation choices they'd have to make and thinking about the book and what would they do and you know just timing it's not that, not by any stretch that they always did what I expected them to do or thought they might do I was often surprised but again and again I found you know, what it seemed to me anyway, evidence that they were really actually thinking about that in, 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 in some, some really cool ways. So that's what I most liked. And that's why I am, I am really excited for uh, the second Hobbit film in a similar kind of way, because I have, you know, my new set of questions of, you know, things I'm going to be really fascinated to see and, and, and stuff that I can't wait to see how it actually unfolds uh, in, in, in the direction they actually take some of these things. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, and so, Ethan, what, what's your greatest fear about the desolation of Smaug? What are you worried about? My greatest fear? Um, you know, I think what I'm curious, I mean, generally speaking, the, the, the things that I was least impressed with in the first movie simply were just places where I felt like um, the screenwriters didn't trust the the sort of central journey of, of, of Bilbo as being enough to kind of carry the you know interest or the narrative weight of the story. Mm -hmm. And there were all these opportunities where it just felt like every character was given um, multiple, the stakes were being raised unnecessarily and there was unnecessary action scenes and unnecessary um, uh, kinds of places where, you know, people had to show character. And, it, and to me, I understand, you know, that he's trying to make, Jackson trying to make the book bigger in that way and wants a lot of characters to go through a couple different arcs, whereas you don't really, I mean, you guys know the book better than I do, I think, but I don't know that that's really ultimately what we get in, in The Hobbit. And so mm -hmm. I'm worried a little too much about, you know, the sort of uh, Thorin versus this sort of CGI goblin king that, you know, is sort of following around. I don't like, I don't like that as much, that sort of, sort mm -hmm. of revenge plot as much. Uh, and I worry a little bit more about, you know, what's what's going to be in store for them in sort of CGI land. <laughs> right. Because I found the whole goblin town just a little bit absurd. Uh, it became cartoonish 
I don't mind the idea that there were action scenes, and I didn't mind that so much, but it got to the place where it was so huge and so big that I felt like we were looking at a, um, like a Pixar cartoon that was you know, amusing, but just took me out of the movie in a way that I didn't feel like, this is not real. Yeah. This is not real enough. I don't know that people could fall 100 feet and only bump their head and go, oops, oh, you know, that kind <laughs> right. of thing. I mean, yeah. you know, it's just not quite, it just, obviously there's suspension of disbelief, and I think we all agree that that's, that's, that's a given with the story anyway. But um, my, so my, I worry my, about more and more of stuff like that, you know, yeah. how much how much yeah. are we going to get pushed in that direction? My biggest problem with Peter Jackson are these gratuitous scenes where something means and then hits another <laughs> thing. And then, yeah. yeah. And it, it, the Minds of Moria yeah. and the Fellowship of the Ring, it was the bridge. The stairs, right? Had, the, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and then going and going. Yeah, this was And then we got two of that. those in an unexpected journey with uh the uh what oh, was the first giants. one it was, yeah, the, it, the, it was the stone giants yeah. and then and then again with the trees you know yes. and they're yep. falling and they yeah i mean yep. it's and it's like it's because they they have this 3d technology and they're shooting it you know 48 fps and they're like we have to have you know a, a reason we have to have the amusement park ride part of the book yes. part of the movie well, that yeah. might be the amusement park ride where if and when, you know, everyone in the Tolkien estate finally gives in and they, they, be, they, they develop the Middle Earth theme park, they will be these, <laughs> they will be the pine tree ride and they will be yeah. the, you know, <laughs> Goblin Town, you know, whatever. Well, I mean, know, obviously, you know, obviously the barrel ride is like the, the prime attraction, is, right? I mean, yeah. like that's got to happen. And that's coming well, up in this movie. So yeah. It's, and yeah. you've seen the trailer, right? Because in the trailer, now the dwarves, instead of just riding inside the barrels, that's yeah, right, they're, they're sticking their heads out and they're like and fighting. Yeah, there's there's a, them exactly going down the river battle yeah. sequence uh, in the midst totally of it. Yeah, absurd. yeah, right. yeah. If they, if they can get out of their if they can get out of the barrels, then why are they still in them? Right. Get out. Yeah. They could just get out of the barrels and walk, or not go to where the river river taking them, or you know who knows. Right. Anyway, it'd be interesting to see how they handle that. It one. is. Yeah. I mean. The my only you know when we were looking at the trailer there my only uh, sort of thought in their defense on that score was, you know, uh, dwarves sitting quietly inside of dark sealed barrels doesn't really make for good cinema. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like it's, you have like barrel cam inside Fuey's, uh barrel, yeah, yeah. still really dark. You hear some thumping yeah, noises yeah, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's okay, not so this. This is a perfect example of why a movie is a different thing than a book. Yes, and I think absolutely. When when critics, and I'm not talking about you, Ethan, but <laughs> you know, like a critic, you know, goes in to watch a movie that's adapted from a book, they they need to kind of forget about the novel and they need to just see it as a cinematic experience. Yeah. And um, that's how I'm going to approach the des desolation of Smaug yeah. because I know I'm not going to like Toriel. You know, you know. I share biases against Toriel, but I have to say, I'm I, I am intrigued by the trailer. I I'm I'm actually I'm 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 not going to pretend I was liking Toriel in the trailer. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to Toriel now. Um, I, I yeah. just hope we get a scene with a, a giant moose chase on Franduil's. You know, <laughs> well, you know, you know, I, 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 the, moose, the moose ride, the moose ride for the theme. I have a park. particular uh, little fantasy about that. You you remember the scene in The Hobbit where Thorin shoots the deer, right, as it's jumping across yes, the river? Uh, heart. Yeah. I have a fantasy that he that they do that 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 one in the film, but it's Thranduil's elk that he shoots. <laughs> nice. And that's like another reason why Thranduil's yeah, really ticked off and takes him prisoner. Yeah. yeah. And it, why the elves hate the dwarves, and that yeah. comes down to. The on top of everything else, you killed my you killed my deer. Yeah. yeah. 
black book that the elves are keeping where they just start checking out. Another thing the dwarves did. Exactly. Oops. Exactly. Earthquake. <clears throat> and, uh, and, uh, and of course, it also has the extra added fun of uh, being a parallel to Virgil's Aeneid. So, you know, it's just, uh, it, would, it would be, it would be where, where a war is, is, is kicked off by the killing of a pet deer. So, you know, it's just fantastic. Uh, there's so much potential there. I really hope, I really, not that I wish any ill to Thranduil's moose, but, or excuse me, elk. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But Ethan, I do, I do, you know, coming back to what you were saying before, I do agree. It is the thing I, you know, in my own temperament, I am, I have a very easy time overlooking things that I don't like. And I can just kind of let them go by and, um, not get too distracted or annoyed by them. I do agree that in the, you know, the one great vice of the first Hobbit film was that tendency. It, it seemed to be like this passion for going over the top. Like we need to outdo what we've done before. So instead of having an action sequence, and again, I have no objection to action sequences either. I thought the majority of the action sequences in the Lord of the Rings films were well done and contributed to the story significantly. Um, but too often in the Hobbit films, it sort of felt like, well, we did something kind of like this in the Lord of the Rings. This is that times yeah. three, you know, yeah. and yeah. that was unfortunate. Um, the, and I, and I agree with you, Ethan, about the, um, especially the, the sort of escape through Goblin Town sequence, um, yeah. in yeah. particular kind of jumps out that way. Not to mention the ludicrous bunny, uh, uh, sled chase, um, yeah. which is just yeah. obviously, uh, ill pandering bunny lover. Well, right, exactly. I don't even, the, I don't bunny, even, the bunny lobby. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I guess maybe. Um, but it's the the thing about that. It's not that I actually, you know, like whatever. I if it were just a bunny sled, I'd be okay with the bunny sled. It's the fact that his idea of drawing away pursuit is to drive around in circles right next to where they are and keep right, the right. keep the pursuit as close to them as possible the whole time. I just. That whole thing where, you know, there were a couple moments like that where I'm like, what is happening here? What am I expected to, like, I'm really good at suspending disbelief, but what am I supposed to be imagining is happening here? I don't get this. Um, That was hard. That was hard. Those those, those, those mad old wizards, you can't really. Yeah, exactly. They know a lot of things, but they don't know anything about how to, you know. I guess. Yeah, they didn't cover that. more annoyed by the anachronistic name usage when uh, Radagast calls his little hedgehog Sebastian. Sebastian, yeah. Right. Which, it's like, come on, just come up with a Middle Earth sounding name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I hadn't noticed that. That's funny. Toriel at least works that way. You know, at least yeah. It, yeah. The, 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 as, as a name, it it, it, it it seems to fit. But, uh, yeah, no, Sebastian was a little bit jarring, but but Sebastian was so cute. I can totally, I, I can totally forget it. I'm still, I'm still hoping that Sebastian is going to come back to play some heroic role uh, in film two. I have, I have, I have high hopes for a giant, a giant CGI hedgehog. <clears throat> He's like Bay Orin. He can shape shift. Well, see, yeah, my, my, my hope is simply that we get Sebastian leading, you know, like an army of small woodland creatures, uh, you know, yeah. as like a, a you catastrophic intervention into a battle sequence at some point. That's, that's, my that's my highest fondest hope for the destiny of Sebastian. So yeah, and we'll see. An excellent way to work you catastrophic. Thank you. Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I can segue into my my book. Ah yes, cool. Perfect. 
Sons of Sons Zeus. Of Zeus. I, I wrote a, a, a blog a while ago where I talked about the connections between J.R.R. Tolkien and ancient Greece. And one of the most interesting things I found was this letter from 1953 where he said that his, his introduction to literature was uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yes. And, um, and there are all these things in, in the Silmarillion, like the fall of Numenor, you know, it's Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in ancient Greek mythology, the ring of Gyges, you know, yes. the ring of invisibility. Uh, and so somebody asked me once, you know, how can you go from writing a book about Tolkien to some, you know, something said in ancient Greece? And the answer is that right after I, I kind of moved out of my Tolkien phase in high school, I went right to the ancient Greeks. And um, so anyway, that that's the... The, the series that I'm working on now is an action adventure set in ancient Greece. Cool, cool. That sounds did great. You, yeah. yourself, did you, you can listen to it about... on oh. unabridged audio. Ooh. <laughs> Noble, you, you were very good, Noble, about having all your props like. Yeah. <laughs> just, like... Just, I, just screen left or screen right. I didn't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Noble is the uh, is is the audiobook on on uh, on Audible. <laughs> It is on Audible. Nice. It's also on uh, MP3, so you can get it on one, 14 hours on one or 20 hours on one disc. Holy cow! Sweet, um, sweet. Yeah, yeah, unabridged audio. Excellent. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I, I I still have a couple of Audible credits saved up, so I'm I'm totally I'm totally downloading that tonight. Uh, awesome. Wait, now your your paperback is already out, right? For, yes, uh, it is. It's uh, it's just recently been released. So yeah, the ex- explain that. I do have that. Paper. I can. Could flash that one for you. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I love the design of the of the uh, of the paperback. There it is, the green. Uh, yeah, oh, nice. Awesome. Okay, here we go. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for. Someone came prepared here. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I was covering your name. Nice. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Well, no, but think of what you were saying about Greece. I think you know it's funny because the. Conversations about Tolkien and Greece tend to go tend to go like in the same kind of way. That is, somebody who's relatively new to Tolkien will say, "Gosh, like in Silmarillion, like you know, the Valar really sound like the gods of Greek mythology. Like, I think Tolkien must have been really influenced by Greek mythology." And then somebody who is more familiar with Tolkien will immediately smack them down and be like, "No, no, 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 no! It's not about Greek mythology. It's about Norse mythology. Tolkien didn't like the Greeks. It's all you know, one hundred percent Norse, zero percent the Mediterranean. Forget about it. You're completely wrong." And that's obviously silly to talk that yeah. way. Yes, of course well, he, he was, was influenced. Of course he was influenced. People forget, you know, I, 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 I've even had, uh, you know, sometimes people will be like, well, you know, okay, you're, you're, you know, if, if say I make a parallel to a particular story from Greek mythology and people say, like, well, you're assuming Tolkien was familiar with that myth. I'm like, what are you talking about? The guy read classics at Oxford when he went to Oxford. He, he, classics he, was his he, major. He, Yes, he was composing spontaneous uh, orations in Greek, you know, in high school. This is what he did. The guy had yeah. read all this stuff, okay? And 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 you're absolutely right. You know, especially it's true that like the overall ethos of Greek mythology, he preferred the overall ethos of Norse mythology to the ethos of Greek mythology. But I think there's lots of evidence that particular stories, particular myths, um, he found really powerful and 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 clearly moved him. I mean, goodness, look at the way in which. The so the fingerprints of Orpheus and Eurydice are on the Baron and Luthien story. You know, yeah, just to exactly. to make one really simple and obvious um, 
uh, illustration. But so, no, I mean, I think there are lots of things. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely, um, a very, a very kind of rich field of study, which sort of ironically, because everybody has been going out of their way to kind of correct, um, rightly correct sort of simplistic leaps that people make about Tolkien and Tolkien's mythology and Greek mythology, usually because readers who come to Tolkien are, are about 15 times more likely to be familiar with Greek mythology than with Norse mythology. So they'll often just sort of make, uh, you know, mistakes or, or leaps out of ignorance. But again, in, in the enthusiasm of people to kind of correct that, there's been this like quashing of this entire line of inquiry to some extent. Uh, and uh, I think that's kind of, that's, that, that's kind of silly. So I, I love finding these influences on, on Tolkien. And, and somebody told me once, they're like, oh, I don't like that book, Lord of the Rings. It's, it's warmongering and glorifying war. <laughs> and it, I was like, it's not. Tolkien was a, sur- a survivor yeah. of one of the most, you know, the trench warfare yeah. where he saw almost all of his friends die. And then he was writing much of Lord of the Rings uh, during World War II when his, his beloved son was off fighting the war in Africa. Several of them, yes. Chapters and sending them to him, and and ultimately the the Lord of the Rings, I think, is about friendship and peace, and it and it ends. Spoiler alert: <laughs> Lord of the Rings ends. The final scene, as we all know, is Sam putting his little girl Eleanor on his lap yeah. and saying, "I'm home." Yeah, it's not somebody going off to war, putting the hanging their sword up over the the mantelpiece. Right. The father with his daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and thinking back again briefly to our conversation about Peter Jackson, um, for me, the fact that he ended the Return of the King film with Sam returning home to Rosie and Eleanor uh, and saying, "I'm back," covered him. Like I was, I was willing to forgive him. It's like, okay, okay, Peter. Like I sat there in the theater and I'm like, okay, Peter, I forgive you, Faramir. I forgive you, Treebeard. Uh, like because you did that. Like it's fine. I, I you know, bygone. Uh, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was very, very happy about Sam at the end there. Cause you're right. That's, it's so crucial, um, uh, you know, to sort of, to, to see that picture of the, you know, the ending and culmination of the story. I think the beauty of all this is that he, he, despite people's individual, um, you know, unhappiness with certain choices on any day, I'll, I would watch seven more hours of this. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, it has to be, has to be decent. It has right. to be even mediocre, but just to sort of, to, 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 to live in that world for a little bit longer, to see another corner of it, to, you know, get to travel somewhere new. To me that, you know, people complain about like the seven endings that the return of the King had. Right. I mean, partly because the book sort of had these different, yes, yes. Know, cha- different storylines they needed to wrap up. When, and, and people who don't know the book, you know, we're, we're, we're furious and we're bored probably. Yeah. But, you know, for me, I'm like, I don't necessarily want this to end. So keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, yeah. You know? What was your, your, your most wonderful moment uh, when you were in New Zealand? Uh, you know, what was the my most wonderful moment? Wow, um, you know that's a really good question. I mean, I think um, I think I mean I just had I just the, the irony, of course, is I went back to many of the places where the films were made, and nothing is really there. Right. I mean, there's no there's no sets, there's no evidence right. that, that 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 something was built because none of the none of the sets were designed to to stay there, mm-hmm. with the exception of the Hobbiton set, which is you know which more or less was, was partially preserved. Now it looks like after they finished the Hobbit, they're turning that into a proper uh, tourist attraction. Right. Um, uh, but um, I would say again and again, it was like that same experience I was describing earlier, where I would be standing in a place and I would I could just for a minute 
kind of reconnect and sort of have that sense of like being almost part of the movie, mm-hmm. but of course never, of course not being in, in the movie at all, and sort of also being in the book at the same time. Um, you know, I went to that exact spot, you know, where they filmed the, you know, get off the road scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to that exact spot where, you know, um, you know, uh, the house that Elrond was supposed to be. I went to, you know, a number of different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, the top of where some of the scenes of it were supposed to be Mordor and some of the more desolate places in the, mostly in the third movie. Um, and just walked through the landscape by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I'm also a film nut and I'm, you know, a, a frustrated filmmaker myself. So part of my, my kind of geeking out on it had a lot to do with just imagining the, the the excitement of even believing not even that I was in the location of what might have been pictured in the movie but I was in the location where you know the film was made like that right. in and of itself seemed to be an exciting thing for me right um, so so I did some goofy things and I, I remember one silly thing I would do is I would take the the um, I had the, 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 the DVDs of the movies with me and I had my laptop computer with me and I'd charge it up for the day, and I'd bring it to the place where they'd film the scene, and I would play the scene from the movie on my laptop, and then I also had a um, a video camera, so I was shooting a a little mini movie of my laptop in the location, (laughs) showing the scene from the movie, so I could could zoom out from, like, the screen, you know, and then I would, like, zoom out, and then I would, we could see the landscape around it, and then I had my little action figures that I collected of the different members of the fellowship. So, you know, that was just sort of my, I, I was also by myself and I was you know in a somewhat somewhat tortured emotional place as well for some reason at that particular time so that kind of little goofy things kind of kept me <laughs> kind of kept me kind of kept me sane that's great because otherwise I would spend too much time going why exactly did I spend all this money to <laughs> right. go all the way here and why am I standing outside of you know Peter Jackson's film studio in the hope that he will walk by and I can stalk him and you know, <laughs> get, his, get his autograph or something so. right I think it's 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 great to indulge oneself in those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, because it's what makes us dreamers. Yeah. And if we didn't allow ourselves to do that, then we'd just be these boring, you know, people doing something we hated and regretting it a whole lot. Right. Like so. you before that uh, that memorable traffic jam that you were describing. That's right. That's right. Exactly. For me, it was it was it was part of me. Also, you're right because it was a very unselfconscious. You know, part of my journey in, in my book is like, how much do I feel like I can be truly a Tolkien fan and kind of come out of the closet about that and right. feel good about it and not really worry about what other people think. And it was a real very. It was sort of the part of the, my journey, my own personal journey of the book, where I really felt like, you know, here's where I'm going to just, you know, the, the, there's no there's no repercussions for being as as geeky as I want to be in these situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a real kind of turning point for me. I felt like, all right, this is cool. This is fine. Yeah. And uh, and I did indulge myself. And I think that's a really good way of putting it. No, well, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, yeah. so. Cool. Well, uh, I should probably let you guys go. Thank you very much for uh, thank you uh, for yeah, coming and talking here tonight. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's uh, so great to hear about some of the both the stuff that you guys have uh, been doing, and I know that uh, uh, that my listeners are going to be interested to hear about the books that you've written uh, on the website that you're working on and everything. And yeah, let um, me plug plug the name again. It's yes, dungeonsanddorkwads.com. Okay, excellent. Yeah, definitely uh, going. Yeah, people are encouraged to people are encouraged to send in things that, that of their from their own past or recent past stuff that they think we might be interested in. We'll we'll take a look at it, uh, send it in a photo of it. That is and, right. Uh, yeah, don't actually I, send it. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be cool. <laughs> you might not get it back though. <laughs> right. Uh, and and we're we're starting to get submissions in from people. We love to we love to you know kind of uh, as we call it dork off about it. So so send your stuff in. Cool. Um, cool. Very good. About that's on the website. So <clears throat> excellent. Well, thanks. Excellent. 
Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey, for inviting us. We appreciate it. No, no. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, uh, after the desolation of Smaug comes out, we should do this again. And, yeah. And uh, have a debriefing. Yeah. That'd be fun. Praise and vent. Exactly. <laughs> I, I hope they'll be, I'll be more generous this time around. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think you've been, uh, you've been uh, uncharitable. You know, I yeah. think that, you know, you've been, uh, you've been very balanced. Um, I certainly have, uh, I'm, f- I'm forgetting how which one it is. There was some podcast that invited me on to talk about the Hobbit film. And then like all they did, like they got me on the, on the show and then all they did was just rant, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, and not even, it was just, you know, real like a really aggressive ranting, and I'm like, actually, I I, I really liked it. I guess there's there's much to be said about it, you know for it, uh, and they were having none of it. So no, compared to many reactions I've heard, even yeah, you were you were very balanced and uh, reasonable. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no worries. But well, uh, good luck with the uh, the Mythgard Institute. Thank you. And uh, yeah, what's coming up with uh, you guys? Well, the, one of the main things that we're we're doing is you know we've we've established our master's degree program, and that's been going now two years, and it's been going really well. We have uh, uh, Tom Shippey is teaching a class now for the first mm-hmm. time. He's oh, teaching cool. he's teaching an introduction to philology and looking at Tolkien's work through his philological study. So he's you know studying a lot of the. Uh, the the works that Tolkien uh, studied and teaching people the principles of philology that were so uh, were so important to Tolkien and thinking how the interconnections between things work. It's really cool. Um, and uh, we're going to go on and do after that. We're going to go on and do introductions to Old English so people you know can uh, you know get in and read Beowulf and The Wanderer and all these other works that really uh, that really influenced Tolkien. Hopefully we'll go on and also be able to do Old Norse and a bunch of other languages like that too. Um, but uh, anyway, it's been it's been it's been really great. Um, so sort of having established that, the the next thing that I wanted to do was to be able to off to to do more more stuff, just open access for people because I know that, you know, though there are lots of people who have been really enthusiastic about our 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 courses that we've been offering about our degree program. Um, you know, the opportunity to study Tolkien and other, you know, fantasy and science fiction uh, authors with, uh, you know, great professors. Not everybody wants a master's degree in literature. You know, not, not not everybody is really there. And even though our tuition is small, not everybody, you know, can pay 500 bucks to, you know, or even 150 to audit a class. Um, but yet, you know, I, I've been wanting to do the kind, you know, more of the kind of discussion that I have done in the past through my podcast. So we've started a new series um, of non-credit classes called the um, the Mythgard the Mythgard Academy, and these are they're kind of like the Silmarillion seminar that I did for my podcast, just kind of getting together with a group of readers, reading through, um, starting with some Tolkien, but possibly branching off onto other things. I'm going to let them vote and decide what books we talk about. Um, but you know, reading through together, doing doing interactive classes, uh, but again, making those open for anybody and posting the recordings of them. So um, we're doing. I mentioned my class on the two towers. Uh, we're doing. You know, I did a class on the Fellowship of the Ring that I posted, and we're doing uh, one right now on the two towers. We just did the stairs of Carathongol last night, and we're gonna do oh, nice. she, <clears throat> we're gonna do Shelob's Lair on Thursday, um, and then uh, after that, you know, I'll let them vote. I. I 
hope and presume the return of the king class is going to happen also but then after that you know we'll see we'll see what people want to do um so that's been something that i've been really wanting to do is kind of to to bring more people in uh and uh you know it's been one of my goals through Mythgard from the beginning is to make make a lot of these things more accessible to people um you know and there are a bunch of sort of projects that i'm kind of you know, brewing and trying to see if I can get together um, that I think would, would sort of help with that if we can get those also running. So this is one step. But right. anyway, that's cool. kind of what we're working on right now. Cool. Yeah. And we have our right. Indiegogo campaign that we're, uh, that we're, uh, that we have out there to try to fund this because of course free courses are not actually free. Uh, you know, I still have to buy the software and when I'm not, when it's not me teaching it, I, uh, I do insist upon paying the faculty who are giving, you know, of their time to teach classes. Um, so uh, I want to make sure to pay uh, to to pay our faculty. So uh, so any so we we do need to raise some money to support these free classes. But the Indiegogo campaign has been going really well. So actually, the as I mentioned by email, the, the recording of this uh, session, parts of the recording of this session will be played uh, during the uh, the uh, Hobbit Day telethon that my students have gotten together uh, to support the Indiegogo campaign. So oh, cool! All right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So. Well, I hope that all of your lives end in eucatastrophe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> An ancient, two ancient Greek words put together. Exactly. Eucatastrophe for your people out there who don't know this. That's right. And it's essentially the end of the return of the king when everything goes from crap to ponies and rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> and eagles fly in and, and, That's right. and save yeah. you from lava. Yeah, the eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. That's that's it. That's all you need to know about eucatastrophe. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, gentlemen. See ya. Bye, guys. Good night. Okay. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, Stay tuned for more Tolkien chats and Riddles in the Dark episodes and other things like that coming up soon. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.